you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to the second chapter of the book of John. John chapter 2, we're looking at uh, the second part of this, of this chapter, starting in verse 12 to the end. If there's any way we can get to the end in one sermon, I'm not sure, but we'll see. We're going to at least read that. So starting in verse 12 through verse 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and dove and the changers of money sinning. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the, the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said to them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showeth us that you uh, seest that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Then he said, Send the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up again in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast of that day, many believed in his name, when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. Dear Father, we thank you for your word that means more than we understand, that means that is more precious than we could ever evaluate. We don't understand it well, and we're, we're, we're faulty in how we obey it, but we see beautiful things here. We see the gospel here. We see your son here. We see authority, uh, total majesty here. And we ask that we would put, be put properly in our place as we read, as we sit at your feet and read what you say is true forever and ever. Amen. We thank you that, Holy Spirit, you're powerful. And you're powerful enough to break into our lives. And you're powerful enough to, to crush our reserve and our uh, resistance against you. Uh, and also to enliven our minds so that we understand you and that we would love you and that you, you will take those that you have saved and take them all the way to your home. We, we ask that you would do great and mighty things to the name of Christ today, that every Christian heart would exalt and extol him and high, lift him higher and higher, and that, that the praise of your name would be our greatest delight. Uh, we pray for this town, that you would change it by the gospel. We pray that forever and always yeah, your name would be remembered uh, with, with honor and, and reverence. And we thank you that your word is powerful and that you, you can be our teacher today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we get into chapter 2, remember that the book of John is a book of evidences, pr- proofs, 
that Jesus is God Almighty, that Jesus Christ, this man, this itinerant rabbi from nowhere, is actually our creator, the creator of the moon and the creator of, of ourselves and the creator of all things, that Jesus Christ is being dis described here um, as being very God. And we went through for 19, 20 weeks through the, the first book, uh, first chapter of this book, seeing the various testimonies that were given, John's testimony of himself as he speaks about Jesus Christ from his own perspective, and then through John the Baptist, his word and what he thought and he saw, and then the very first disciples. We see that there are five disciples at this point. Last week, we saw that he was at a wedding at Cana, and that John picks seven miracles only out of all the things that Jesus ever did, and he only picks seven, and he tells those seven things, and he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. And we saw that Peter takes that word and says, miracles, signs, and wonders were proclaimed as a, as a flashing light to get people's attention so that they would come to the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ as, as their God. And John, remember, at the end of his book, say, everything I wrote was so that you would understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. So it is a book of evangelism that we're going to look at. <clears throat> when we see that his first miracle was done very privately, very secretly, that nobody even knew that a miracle was done, only a couple servants, and then later his disciples believed on him. And that's how it begins, that it's very quiet, like the dawn, and it's imperceptible. You're not quite sure what second that the sun comes up. You just know that the sky gets lighter and lighter, and eventually the sun is blazing. We're going to see that here. But John doesn't just show these seven miracles. <clears throat> he will show interviews with people as Jesus speaks. And as you're listening to your God, you are to know, is this God? Is this the God that really did make the world? Is this he? And then we're going to see other things that he does. What does he do that's so completely befuddling and it makes you scratch your head and say, is this consistent with the personality of the one that I know as Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to see that today. This is a very hard passage. This is the passage where he will go to Jerusalem and clear the temple. So we, we will uh, do this not as a three-point sermon, but I'm simply going to go through the verses from 12 to 25. What do we see in 12? What do we see in 13? What do we see in 14? Because this progresses uh, with what God has for us in the way that it's written, and that's the way I'd like to say it. So let's start in 12. After this, this was the turning the water into wine and the marriage at Cana where his, where his disciples were believing on him. <clears throat> they went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and brethren and disciples, and they continued there not many days. So I had to look up the map. <clears throat> the Sea of Galilee is in the north part of Israel, and then there's, a, there's the Jordan River that goes south, and then the Salt Sea is at the bottom of Israel. So most of the bigger cities is on the west coast. And during Jesus' day, all of them would have been on the west side of the, of the river. Nazareth is to the west of Galilee. And Capernaum is on the top of the lake. And Capernaum will eventually be his headquarters. That's where many of his miracles are done. The different gospels record seven different miracles just in this town of Capernaum. 
So <clears throat> if you're going to Jerusalem, Nazareth is actually further south than Capernaum. They could have left from Cana, gone back through Nazareth, and kept going down uh, to Jerusalem. But they went first to the lake. They went to Capernaum. And his mother joined them. His brothers joined them. Remember, they were all at this family wedding. And his disciples also. And, it, and the only thing that John says is that they continued there not many days. Just a short time. So here's a part of the Bible where nothing is said, but we're, the, our attention is called to the fact that nothing was said about something, which immediately catches my attention. Why? Why would they say something about something that there wasn't anything to say about? Because the, the Bible is eternal. This world will sink. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, you know how to read my mind. Read my throat. So the Bible is eternal. It is what God will always say and have said. And the, the whole earth will cave in before this word caves in. There's nothing unimportant. So I dug just a little bit. First of all, it's about 16 miles to get to Capernaum. And so I remember uh, preaching once here on Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, he comes back after he goes to Jerusalem in this event. He comes back later up through Samaria. He meets with the woman at the well. He comes all the way back up into the north, and he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, and he preaches in the synagogue there where he grew up, where everybody knew him, and he preaches there. And this is from uh, Luke chapter 4. He's telling those people who are about to kill him because he is claiming that the people that, that do, were not supposed to look for him are finding him. But the people who should be looking for him don't care at all. And he's making a claim there. And he says this at the end of chapter 4. And he said to them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. For whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here also in your country. <clears throat> that means that in this event where he goes down to Capernaum, and nothing is said in the book of John, that he must have done so many miracles that it got, back to, it got back to Nazareth so that by the time he got back there, there was all these people who had seen Jesus do amazing things and heal people and raise the dead and do things that only God could do. And his people were like, why isn't there any shows in our town? If you're a big showman, why aren't you doing anything here? So then the nastiness that comes with the idea that we want a show too, we want a circus like everybody else gets circuses. Why is Capernaum getting something that you don't? Um, and it's really interesting that, that that is really the whole, that's all of our lives. We want to see something showy. <clears throat> we want a sign. We want God to prove something to us. But the problem is when you prove something through just a sign, even if people were to believe, that's not really faith. That is catching your attention. It might be something you're like, you wanted to see it. You wanted to see something big. And people love something to join. They want something to join. But it's not true faith. True faith is knowing the gospel and putting your whole weight of your life now and forever in that truth of that gospel. Understanding. Understanding Jesus with understanding. No, don't look to him with a superstition. Don't look to him with an American Christianity of, of God loves everybody and it's just a big old uh, group hug. God has coming to us. He's already condemned mankind. Every one of us. 
Every one of us are condemned. Every one. And those people that come to him with an understanding that he is giving rescue and promising deliverance and salvation, to them he will commit himself. But very many times he will be doing so many amazing things, it's going to catch everybody's attention. Everybody realizes what he's doing could not be done except by God. And everybody has a reason for it. And there's lots of people who will see something and just want to show. They just want to see something. They want to see something amazing. So we'll get back to this because the end of the chapter really returns to this idea. In fact, I think it's the key part of this chapter. Not, not the cleansing of the temple, which is crucial and important. And you do not understand the gospel until you understand who Jesus Christ is. And he's showing who he is during this passage. But really, we're talking about belief. What do people believe? And what does believe mean? We'll look at it at the end in, chapter, in verses 24 and 25. So let's go into 13. The Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went, goes up to Jerusalem. So the Passover was the first of the year, and it's in the spring. And it was essentially a commemoration of when the, Moses commanded the people to put the blood on the door, and they kept in, and during that night, if you were in behind the blood on the door of, of your house, you were safe, and all that did not have it were judged. And the firstborn of every house was taken, no matter what it was, whether it was animal, whether it was servant, whether it was king, whether it was Jew or Gentile. It did not matter whether it was the Egyptian, uh, from the baker to the, to the oarsman, to the person, political prisoner. It did not matter. Everyone was judged. And God required the faith to hide behind the blood in the door. And it was it commanded that forever, year after year, you would observe this. And every man was required to be and present himself before God. Every single person. It was a requirement. And Jesus comes down. We're going to see that in the book of John, you're going to see three Passovers. And this is how we know that the ministry of Christ was three years long. We know that from the book of John because you see first Passover, second Passover, third Passover. And so he goes at a Passover because Jesus is obeying for us. If all men were commanded to go, and I've never gone, Jesus went for me. Jesus met all of God's requirements for me. My dependence upon him is that I am not standing with my own merits before holiness because I have blown it in every way. Jesus stands before completely having met every to the, to the exactness of the law, but with a heart perfect before God. And he goes down as he should. He goes down the way he should. And remember, he is claiming to be the Messiah. He has already pronounced himself. The Messiah is God's priest. The Messiah is God's king, the son of David. And the Messiah is God's complete um, savior. This is who he's claiming to be. He's not... He's not slipping into this role. He assumes this role on the day of his baptism, and from then on, his, his face is set all the way to the end of his mission, and he goes first to the temple. Now, I think it's very interesting. The king of Israel doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't go to the Sanhedrin. He doesn't go to the courts. He doesn't say, well, I need to clean house. Where am I going to start? He goes to the temple. And the temple, if you remember, was where people went to meet with God. It was the, rep it was the representative of, of Jesus' religion, of the religion that Jesus knew was true and true. And when he looks, he's just disgusted. It is 
so far from what God had intended that nobody would agree that it was being done right. It was all just whatever, whatever. Okay, so if you remember what we read before, Isaiah said, and these Gentiles who you think of as dogs, I will take in and they, I'll accept their worship the same as yours. And they will sacrifice to me and they will come and they will burn, they will burn to me just the same as you and I'll accept them the same as you. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so you have to realize that that was God's intention that the temple itself, just as a building, just as a constructed building, allowed every person to meet with God, even though that God had to keep us at limits because we were sinners and the temple was a picture of Jesus Christ. The temple was not Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ and we're acceptable before very God. You can come into God's very presence and be accepted in Christ. These people, it was all pictures, it was all signs. And the temple represented that anybody could come to God. And Jesus found it just completely corrupted. This is from the book of Malachi. This is the last book of the, New, of the Old Testament where he's promising his Messiah to come and what his Messiah will do. Behold, I'll send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, and who may abide the day of his coming. And, he, and who shall stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness." It is the Messiah's job to purify the religion of God Almighty, that that was his job. A priest's job was to clean things that needed cleaned and to build things that had fallen down. And as priest, which is the Messiah is, he came to the temple. And he came also to the temple as one that is the temple. We're going to see in this passage he calls his very body the temple. If you want to meet with God, you meet with God through Jesus Christ. There is no meeting with God. It's not as you please. It's God's intention to be sought. It's God's intention to be found. And you find him in a trembling coming to Jesus Christ. And you don't come just by a flashy, ooh, I like what I'm looking at. That's not real faith. Real faith is knowing the gospel, keeping on going, investigating further until you see. When Moses looks at the burning bush, it catches attention. But he does not meet with God until he goes and encounters God. Then he knows who God is. He didn't know before. And it's, a, it's basically the first day of getting to know God. God will woo you and bring you and bring you and bring you. It's not something I already know that already. I already learned that in school. It's not something you learned in school. Knowing God is living with God being your God, knowing who he is, knowing how to trust him, knowing who you are and what, what you are like, and being able to see yourself through yourself so that you're not fooled by a false profession. You're not fooled anymore. You know I must be right with God through Christ. This is the temple. This is the temple we're talking about. And this is the religion of Jesus Christ. The religion of Jesus Christ is that fallen men of Adam would come to know God in rescue and in salvation. 
and he knows that he has to be the one. He is the sacrifice. He is these bulls and goats and doves. He realizes what they represent, and all of these stupid people and corrupted people are making a mockery of really what he knows to be the, the religion that he is practicing. That is the only religion I want. I want the religion that Jesus knows. Everything else, to whatever degree that I'm holding weirdness, God will let that fall. I want what God knows through Christ is, is the way I can approach him. And he comes to the temple. Now, if you know the temple, the temple is now has a mosque on it. The whole temple mount has a mosque. But basically, it was an enormous courtyard. It was 1,500 feet long by 1,000 feet wide. So it was like a big sheet of paper completely surrounded with a porch, uh, all in columns, called Solomon's Porch, basically just a big ring so you could get out of the sun, basically you could get in the shade. And then in the very middle of the, of the, of the long side, there was a huge uh, walled complex, probably bigger than two football fields side by side, walled, right? The outer court was for anybody, any nation, anybody at all. And you could approach God, and you could offer sacrifices, and, you, and God would accept them. You could come as somebody that was not one of God's people and worship God acceptably, and that's where you're to worship. And this was what Jesus found. He found it full of animals and cash registers, and it made him sick. Because what you were doing is you were despising people. You were saying it really doesn't matter anyway. We understand, we've got this building, we'll, we'll see the way it needs to work. It wasn't intended, it doesn't really matter, we needed the space, we don't want people to have to go out of their way to go down into town to get a cow or whatever. We'll supply it and we'll get a profit. And there were even rumors at the time of Jesus, there were even ancient rumors that these animals were not even sacrificed, that you would pay a fortune for it in, in prices 10 times higher than normal, pay for it, because if you brought your own, it was very possible that the priest would say, mm, no, not good enough. Look at that eyelash. It's out of place. Mm, I'm sorry, this is not acceptable. You're going to have to take that sheet back home. Then what do you do? You're required to meet before God. So you had to buy their stuff at their prices. And then it was even possible that that same animal was sold of 25 people and never actually sacrificed at all because it was a, it was a business. They had turned God's place into a business into making money. Jesus said, don't talk, it's my father's house. You've turned it into a place of merchandise. You're buying and selling things. How dare you? He sees it as what it really is. He doesn't see it as, oh, don't be so upset. Oh, what is it? We're just, we're using it the way it is. It's the biggest part of the temple. These Gentiles are all going to hell anyway. And so, so God was, was outraged. And I think it's amazing that, that when you go into, into the walled part on the inner, inner temple, you had a whole court of women, big, a big square place where the women of Israel were allowed to go. Then you had a door, and then the men of Israel were allowed to go. And then past that, you had the rooms of the temple where the priests were allowed to go. And then inside, you had a room where the Holy of Holies were, and the high priest only was allowed to go once with a sacrifice in a year that no one was allowed. And that was the idea. It was a concept. It was the throne of God himself to approach God. And that meant that the biggest part of the temple was for the nations, that all people would be able to come to God. 
And they were basically like, we'll decide for ourselves how we want to run this show and, what we, and whether it'll, it'll benefit us or not. And we need the money, right? Takes a lot to run a temple. And that's what Jesus found. And so Jesus, then verse, this is now in 14, he found those that were selling oxen and sheep and dove and the changers of the money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Pretty, pretty amazing. So he gets, a, he gets a little bit of a rope. He turns it into a, into a whip. He holds it into a cord. And he, by himself, does what? A hundred years of righteous men ached and mourned for. That why would you turn this place into a zoo? Why would you turn it into one big gift shop? As though somehow it's all about the money. I promise you that false religion is always all about the money. Always all about the money. Be careful. You be careful. You and your money will be very quickly parted. Because... As sinful people appeal to other sinful people to keep their sin and get God too, it'll all, it's always about the money. And that's, that's what we're going to see here. So he takes a cord of whip. Now, I, I was very interested with that because you think, what does that mean? Like he takes a rope and what, he flicks people with rope? It, it really isn't that at all. That is a symbol, a Roman symbol of authority. Um, I looked up a picture of the House of Representatives. <laughs> And you've all seen it, if you've ever seen a State of the Union address. The president stands at the rostrum of the House of Representatives, and the flag is behind him, and the clock above on the thing. And on both sides of the flag are two bronze embeds in the marble behind him. And it is a fasces. It's a Roman fasces. And a Roman fasces is a bundle of rods tied with a ribbon. And at the top will either have the head of an axe or it'll have a whip, one or the other. So if you, and this is everywhere in Rome, all the ancient buildings have them. Anytime that a magistrate or the emperor came anywhere, he had people in front of him holding these rods. And what that meant is I have the right, I have the authority to strike you with this rod. I am your authority. You don't have your own authority, I have the authority to punish you in my presence in front of the world. And then the whip was that I can either have you whipped and the ax was I can have you beheaded. That I have the authority to do that. So when Jesus takes a bunch of cords, he was doing something that everybody knew. There wasn't a single Roman magistrate in Palestine that did not go in with, his, with his symbol of authority in front of him. And then when he spoke, people trembled because they weren't trembling at that little guy. They were trembling, believe it or not, at the bunch of sticks because the bunch of sticks represented Rome. Rome was so brutal and so ruthless that they actually had what was called the Pax Romanum. You could walk absolutely freely, unmolested, from Turkey to Scotland and never worry about getting uh, harmed, never worry about getting robbed because if you were robbed in a certain town, Rome would come and completely decimate that town, burn the town to the ground, and crucify every inhabitant of that town. And they did it on the first offense. And when you are that brutal, people are just afraid. They're like, I'm not going to mess with this. This can't be messed with. So when those sticks stood in front of that little wimpy guy who was speaking, they trembled in their shoes. 
And Jesus picks up a, a rope and he coils it up and he holds it in front of him and then with one hand overthrows the table and runs out the oxen and runs out the sheep and opens the pens and the doves all fly away and he takes the money and pours it on the ground and he said, how dare you? The zeal of the Lord was in him and he knows that his father's house is not a den of merchandise. And later, when this is done again, because you're going to see that in the Bible, John puts this event in the first week, right after his baptism. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it in Holy Week before his crucifixion. So whether this is one event where John has simply put it out, or there's two events where he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end, the first thing he did and the last thing he did was clean house. And he starts with the household of God. If my people call by my name, he doesn't care about the world. He doesn't care. If my people will truly be mine, I promise the rest will fall into place. If you are fraudulent and if you are, are compromised, nothing will ever happen. You're, you're, you're a bunch of fools. But if you say you're mine and you treat me like I am truly your God and you fear me appropriately, then I promise everything else will go because I can take care of Rome. I'm not worried about Rome. God himself does not tremble when he sees the rods because he is God. He's the one who has authority and Jesus was wielding his authority to be the purifier of the temple. He was saying, I have full authority and the Jews knew this instantly. The Jews recognized it was not that he was flipping tables, that they were mad at him or even questioning him. They, they, they questioned him because he was doing something that required authority to do. A private citizen cannot do anything like that. There is means that you go about, there's a proper way of doing things. You, and even if you, see, if you see abuses, even in God's church, you don't just flip tables. You don't have the authority to do that. Jesus Christ did have the authority to do that, and that's what the Jews saw. Now, in John 17, we're as far as 17 now, um, and disciples remembered that it was written. Now, this is David writing and back in the Psalms. This is from Psalm 69. The, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. So when David wrote that, those words, he said, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen on me. I am so concerned about proper worship in God's house that when, when, when people mock God, it's the same as mocking me. I feel it pain just the same way as if they were offending me instead of offending God. When you are... When you're fraudulent or, or wobbly or backwards or compromised and it's not proper that we're not worshiping God the way God insists to be worshiped. David was just panicked. He had intense anxiety about this and Jesus knew it. And, in, and as he did it, the disciples later, now it's interesting, it's always later, the Holy Spirit is now taking these events and in their mind showing them what they already know. They know that David said, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. And Jesus didn't say, hey, this is me, the zeal of your house is eating me up. He didn't quote it. They simply remembered what, what David had said when they saw what Jesus had done. They recognized that he had the authority to do it because he was the Messiah. He is God himself, and he starts at, at the temple. 
So these, these Jews were like, hey, show us a sign. If you're the Messiah, if you have the authority, I look at your cords, I, say, I see your cords, I know what you're saying. You are saying that you have every right to do this. Show me a right. Show me a sign. Make, a, make something happen. Float in the air. Do something amazing. Okay? Let, you know, pick my card or whatever that you're trying to do. I want to see, I want to see something that you have the right to be who you are. Now, it's interesting that they didn't just look at the fact that a single man purified the temple. Was that not sign enough? I don't know. But they didn't quite see that that's what just happened. And, and, and I don't know when, what happens if they, if they did it again. If he did it the second time and they're like, wait, this is the same guy who did this three years ago. And they're like, we're not, not quite catching on to this. And he says, instead of like, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't do that. It's the, first of all, that would be wasted on them. Now, he gets in chapter 4, and there is a Samaritan woman who doesn't even know what, what Jewish religion is. She gets it all wrong to start with because she doesn't even know anything. And Jesus, in words unplain, absolutely undisputable plain, says, I'm the Messiah. Tells her directly, I'm the Messiah. But to these Jews who should know who to look for, these are the people in charge of the temple. They are the ones who had the PhDs from theology school. They knew what they were looking for. They knew who he was claiming to be, and they weren't liking it at all. He doesn't tell them. He says instead, this is verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, immediately they're like, he's an idiot. And they say, okay, well, you know, Back before B.C. turned into A.D., I don't know what they thought, because how did they know it turned from B.C. into A.D.? But we started building, Herod uh, is our friend, okay, the wicked, wicked Herod is our friend, and 20 years before Jesus was born, they start making this temple. It had collapsed into a bunch of ruin, and, G and, and Herod needed the politics clout, and he started building a magnificent temple, one of the greatest uh, buildings in the ancient world, without any doubt. Um, whether or not it was the Solomon's temples equal, I doubt it, but, but in terms of impressive, it was. And he started building it in, in 20 AD, and this is, this is 26 AD, and they're still building it. This is 46. Now, it was probably 80 years in the construction right before it got destroyed the next year, which I think is interesting too. But they build, 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 and then the Roman comes and completely destroys it. There's nothing left of it. For even till now, there's nothing left at all. But he, he, they say 40 and 6 years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Of course, they're, they're saying, let's talk about you know, the words you're mentioning. They're talking to him, holding a symbol of authority, claiming to be Messiah, and they recognize what he's claiming, but yet that they want to talk about like 46 years, and you're saying you can, what are you talking about? And the, but John now interjects. John, the apostle, the writer of this book says, but he spake of his body. That's in verse 1, 21. So he's talking about himself. He is the temple. You want to come to God? That's how you come to God. You come to God through Christ. And you, and you destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Jesus raised himself from the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. It says that in John 14. I lay myself, my life down, and I will raise it up again. I can raise myself from the dead. I think that is, that's astonishing. And they, they don't even know what he's doing. I mean, they're just, they're just scratching their head, and then they, he just leaves. 
They don't arrest him. There's a whole temple uh, army. They've got an entire garrison of uh, temple guards there, and he has just completely upset the whole day, and he just leaves because he has the authority to do so, and they can't stop him, and they can't, it doesn't matter what they want or don't want. It doesn't matter. Now, when you get to verse 22, John is now saying, and when therefore he was risen from the dead, so John is now going all the way past the resurrection, his disciples remembered what he had said and that he and they believed the scripture, the word which Jesus had said. You see, the Holy Spirit took everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, everything that transpired and showed them reality, showed them truly what was real. And they believed the scripture that had already been written, already been written and remembered that he had said, you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. And then the disciples believed. It's interesting that you see the disciples believing and believing and believing. Do you get saved over and over again? No, I don't think you get saved over and over again. But a Christian will continuously believe and then re-believe and re-believe and re-believe, strengthening and strengthening what's actually there. Your faith is something weak that's built, and it's built by interacting with the real God. And every time you get closer to the real gospel, and forget the fiddly, fussy stuff about whatever we do in our worship. But when it's the gospel you're looking at, you're stronger. You're stronger than you once were. And that little wicker of faith, Jesus does not quench it. When it's smoking flax and that candle is about to go out, he does not just finish the job. And that reed is broken halfway, he doesn't finish the job. He establishes and he grows you, and then he, he shows you himself. Now, this is John 23. When he Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover on the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles. And this was not hypocrites. These were people who truly saw what he did, and they put his faith in his name, whatever that means. They looked at him doing something amazing. He healed. He healed everywhere he went. There was, in the three years that he was ministering in, in Judea, there was no sickness in Judea. There was nobody ill. There was nobody. He emptied every asylum. He emptied every hospital. He emptied every rehab facility. He totally did what no one could ever imagine doing. Why didn't the entire country come to him in faith? But they didn't. This, these Jews, these Jews that wanted to, to have what they wanted, they wanted what they understood, they were not willing to turn to what were essentially the, the faith of their real faith. They, did, they wanted what they wanted, and they wanted their power, and they wanted their status, and they wanted their influence. They wanted to be boss, and they were will, that was too expensive. They were not willing to give that away in order to know the Jesus who is the, the religion that they claim to, to worship. And this is the scary verse. This is the, one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. I trembled this week as I looked at this. So all these people believed on him. That's what it says. They believed in his name. The same thing I claim. The same thing as I believed in the name of Jesus. I believed in him. And verse uh, 24 says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Now, what made me tremble is when I, when I went into the Greek to, to do my, my daily Greek stuff, when I, when I say, okay, if I'm going to say, thus saith the Lord, I want to say, what does this say? What does this say? What does this mean? What does this mean? And I go all the way through it. And when you look at this, the word for believe is pistuo. It's the word pistuo, to believe. And in verse 23, it says, they pistuoed in his name. 
They put their faith in his name. And in verse 24, Jesus did not pastuo to them. Now that makes me tremble. These people who lightly believed in his name because they saw something flashy, something shiny, just like Moses, what is that? Look at that bush. What's going on? And they investigate. That is faith, isn't it? But that's not saving faith. That is walking towards something faith. These people who put their, their trust in him, who saw him do something amazing and went, he's probably the Messiah. They had nothing against it. There's people who don't make war against God. There's, there's lots of people who are like, I'm okay with Jesus being the, the king. I don't care. Doesn't really have anything to do with me. Maybe, maybe he'll bless me or something like that. There's a lot of people that their faith is only to the effect that it has something to do with them, that they're benefited in some way. Well, this actually says they put their faith in him, but he didn't put his faith in them. And that just makes me drop. Whew. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? When you have a light faith, that light faith can be the very first faith. Martin Luther called it milk faith, which I just thought, what a great word, milk faith. It's that baby milk. It's the faith that can make faith happen and make more faith happen that can make more faith happen. And then God commits himself to you because you're trusting in what you understand. When I said sing with understanding, I mean sing with understanding. When we read scripture, read with understanding. Don't read with a dull voice. Don't read with a mind that's going somewhere else. You say, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does that mean that this means that? What does it mean to me that that's what it, is it says? You, you sit in the gospel and you say the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived in my place. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died in my place and that the gospel is that this is God Almighty who died in my place. That he, he who is infinite, infinitely suffered in my place. That I would not, as a, as a man who will never die, has to infinitely suffer. This is the gospel. You put your faith in the gospel and life will come into you. You believe in his name that you might live. And that is where it says here that they trust, they believed in him, but he did not believe in them. And I immediately just hit my knees. Oh, God. Do you believe in me? Have I believed so that you are in me, so that I have life in your name? Am I life? Am I alive? Or am I dead? Because lots of people are religious. It means nothing. It means nothing. Lots of people. So Christ will commit himself to the man who thoroughly commits himself to him. There is something in a life that makes you know he's alive. The baby cries after the baby is born. The baby is born and then bellers and cries. The Christian comes to life and then says, oh, God, I've offended you. He doesn't go, offend, I've got offended you and God will then reward that with life. He comes to life and goes, what have I done? And he grieves for the sin that you've done. And already God is committing himself to you and he never leaves you. He'll never go away from you until the end of the age. But you must search yourself. You search yourself, am I in the faith? That's what Paul said. Don't be light. Don't be touching. Don't be, don't be a nominal Christian in name only. I had someone ask, I asked them if they were a Christian, and they said, yeah, I'm not a Buddhist. That was their response. As if, well, I'm not a Buddhist, so I must be a Christian. Well, how's that working for you? Because that really is the, that's the idea in our culture today. 
And that's where I see. Now, it's required that we look at Jesus, the authoritarian. He's the master. He's the master of the temple. But then that same one who talks about himself being the temple and then ends with, he didn't commit himself to them. Though he's committing himself to these five men who came to him. They came to him and they're, just, they're believing and then believing and then believing and believing and believing. Do you see it? They're, God's committing themselves to them because they don't know it all and they're not doing it right. And they're a bunch of bumbleheads and they put their heart to him. They're, they're putting all their eggs in one basket. They're not hedging their bets. And so the multitude who believed on his name that all went wherever they went and the five who then followed him everywhere he went in his suffering. I just have to say, God, make me one of the five. Make me one of the five. Do you see your God here? That's awesome. Father, we, we want to thank you for your gospel and ask that it would change our lives. And we thank you for your church and ask that it, you would purify it and make it great in this, in this culture. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.